0: Fifteen years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Oh, yeah. Yes, I am Not Not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, my name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, as always. Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katarina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my two Emmas, Emily, Gaylin, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so so much, guys. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. Today's podcast will be on Peter Woodcock. He was born on March 5th, 1939 in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. So let's get into some history for that time. As far as recent history goes, this is a pretty big year because this year was the beginning of World War II. Nazi Germany invaded Poland, and immediately after, France, Australia, and the U.K. declared war on Germany. France and the U.K. had agreed to support Poland, but in August of that year, German troops were already beginning to gather on the Polish border. Also this year, Russia tried to negotiate a land deal with Finland in October, but both of the offers and counteroffers were rejected on both sides. Russian troops invaded Finland the next month, and the USSR began to bomb Helsinki. The purpose of the conflict was that the Soviet Union wanted to exchange certain lands with Finland so that the Russian city of Leningrad would be better protected as the Second World War began. Although the Red Army outnumbered the Finnish defenses, it lacked leadership and organization. Lack of organization on the Soviet side, coupled with a high morale among the Finnish side, left a slightly different outcome than what was expected during the Winter War. In the UK... The Woman's Auxiliary Air Force was created that summer and was established by King George VI because he knew World War II was upon them. It was later fully integrated into the Royal Air Force. In south-central Chile, an 8.3 magnitude earthquake hit late at night, It was the deadliest earthquake in Chile's history, and an estimated 30,000 to 50,000 people died. In Spain, dictator Francisco Franco conquered Madrid, ending the Spanish Civil War, which had begun three years earlier. The nationalists were supported by Italy and Germany, while the republicans were supported by the USSR. In 1938, uranium fission was discovered, and physicists began to study nuclear physics. One physicist concluded that it could be possible to develop a nuclear bomb and believed Nazi Germany had also been trying to develop the same. Two physicists, including Albert Einstein, put together a letter to the President of the United States, who was Roosevelt at the time, warning him of this discovery. They advised the President to fund a government department to research nuclear weapons. This resulted in the creation of the Advisory Committee on Uranium. Then from that committee came the eventual formation of the Manhattan Project, which successfully produced the first atomic bomb in 1945, changing the world and warfare forever. Pope Pius XI died after an extended illness at 81 years old. Thailand changed its name from Siam. There was a revolt in Palestine, continuing droughts in the U.S., and the Independent Republic of Czechoslovakia was dissolved. So, some other notable people born in 1939 were John Cleese from Monty Python, Marvin Gaye, Francis Ford Coppola, the Tina Turner, Ralph Lauren, Lee Majors, and Lee Harvey Oswald. So, this was the global atmosphere that Peter was born into. Okay, before we get started, two things. Okay, one, in 1982, Peter legally changed his name to David Michael Kruger, but I will continue to call him Peter for story continuity. Two parts of his story are quite disturbing and involve children, so here's my disclaimer, disclaimer, okay? Let's begin. Unfortunately, there really is no concrete information about Peter's parents. I could find no information at all about who his possible father was. We do know his mother's name was Wyeda Woodcock, and she gave birth to Peter at just 17 years old. She was so young, and yet was already a seasoned factory worker. And there were some sources that indicated she prostituted herself for extra money, so... There could be a chance that she might not have even known who his biological father was. But again, this is just hearsay. Though it was said that she was trying her best, he was an inconsolable newborn crying incessantly. She had to work, was overwhelmed, and when he was only one month old, she gave him up to the Children's Aid Society, which was a foster care system in Canada at that time. Now, the agency records state that the one-month-old showed feeding problems and cried constantly, and they tried placing him in various foster homes, but because he was passed around so much, he was never fully able to form a bond with any single caregiver. The podcast I recorded before this one was all about attachment disorders, and I mentioned Peter in it, so I'll put a card up here and link it as well in the notes below. But it is important to note that important pathways and connections in the brain are made as an infant knows with certainty that they are loved and cared for by their mother or caregiver. Without this, it can gravely affect their social, emotional, and cognitive development. There is increasing evidence from the field of developmental psychology, neurobiology, and animal epigenetic studies that show neglectful parental inconsistency and a lack of love can lead to long-term mental health problems, along with greatly reduced overall happiness. The experiences that an infant has with their primary caregivers are crucial to early wiring and pruning of such rapid brain development as an infant's brain does. Quite literally. Repeated interactions and communication lead to pathways being laid down that help memories and relationships form, as well as learning and logic to develop. If positive experiences do not happen, the pathways needed for normal human experiences may be lost. This is often referred to as the quote, use it or lose it principle. Tragic case studies of feral children who have survived with minimal human contact illustrate the severe lack of language and emotional development in the absence of love, language, and attention in the same way. Even though babies have a deep genetic predisposition to bond with a loving parent, this can be disrupted if a baby's parents or caregivers are neglectful and inconsistent. In fact, longitudinal studies have reported that a child's ability to form and maintain healthy relationships throughout life may be significantly impaired by having an insecure attachment to a primary caregiver. It has been reported the following pathology and children who suffered neglect and extreme form of insecure attachment in their early years reduced growth in the left hemisphere which may lead to associated increased depression or risk of depression, increased sensitivity in the limbic system, which can lead to anxiety disorders, and reduced growth in the hippocampus, which can lead to learning and memory impairments. It's not a joke, guys. So, in one particular foster home, he was just a small toddler when he was physically abused And as a result, he had to be taken to the emergency room where it was discovered that he had suffered a neck injury. Peter became so detached, he would scream in terror if anyone came near him. So one of his coping mechanisms was to make what was described as odd animal noises, and his behavior became worse and worse. Peter later stated that he remembered being left alone in the dark for long periods of time saying, quote, hardly anyone ever picked me up or held me or things like that, end quote. When Peter was three years old, he was placed in the home of Frank and Susan Maynard, who already had another son. The couple lived comfortably during these hard times. This would prove to be a much more stable environment for Peter. These parents put him in therapy, and eventually his constant screaming and crying subsided. However, the damage was already done. He could remain calm around other people, but he was forever the social outcast. The Maynards took Peter to a children's hospital for his already quite apparent behavioral issues, and the doctors stated that he was displaying schizophrenic behaviors at just 10 years old. Now, they didn't technically diagnose him with schizophrenia, but even suggesting that for a 10-year-old little boy is highly unusual. Social workers stayed involved with the family so that they could monitor Peter's continuing development. One worker in particular later stated once when she took him to the Canadian National Exhibition, he said, quote, I wish a bomb would fall on the exhibition and kill all of the children, End quote. Peter was actually quite talkative, and he came across as a know-it-all, but he had academic as well as disciplinary problems, and the other kids targeted him and bullied him relentlessly. He resorted to hiding in the forests or bushes near his home to avoid his peers. As his childhood progressed, already having a speech impediment, He never was able to form attachments to his peers or others around him. He had no friends. This would later leave him with a diagnosis of reactive attachment disorder. Now, kids and teens with this disorder are generally always caused from not being able to properly bond with caregivers. They isolate themselves or they are severely aggressive. They need to be in total control of every situation that they are in. They just don't have the ability to trust other people. They crave attention, but once they get it, they have a hard time deciphering the emotion behind the attention and therefore process it as a negative experience. They have a diminished sense of guilt and, and generally start to display sexual deviancy and tend to abuse drugs. Suicide is also a concern with this disorder. So, Peter was indeed a loner and had a hard time interacting with people when they would try to speak to him. He had an insatiable need to wander around as far as his parents would allow he was just not content to be still. An expert from a report based on Peter Woodcock's childhood behavior states, quote, Slight and build, neat in appearance, eyes bright and wide open, worried facial expression, sometimes screwing up his eyes, walks briskly and direct, moves rapidly, darts ahead interested in questioning constantly in conversation. He attributes his wandering to feeling so nervous that he just has to get away. In some ways, Peter has little capacity for self-control. He appears to act out almost everything he thinks and demonstrates excessive affection for his foster mother, although he verbalizes his resentment for other children. He has never been known to physically attack another child. Peter apparently has no friends. He plays occasionally with younger children when he manages the play. When with children his own age, he is boastful and expresses determinately ideas which are unacceptable and misunderstood. End quote. So his parents put him in a private school, hoping to help him with his awkwardness around kids his own age, but it made no difference. Peter's foster parents were forced to then remove him from the private school due to his very strange behaviors. Social workers and therapists continued working with him and the family due to him still technically being a foster child. His parents sent him to a school for emotionally disturbed children in Kingston, Ontario, but his behavior became even more twisted and sadistic. It was also at this school where, according to Peter, who was 13 at this point, said he became sexually active with a consenting 12-year-old girl. Now, whether this is true is not known. The one thing Peter loved above all was his bicycle. It was a red and white Schwinn, which served to soothe his compulsions to wander around and be by himself. He rode it everywhere, sometimes for miles out into the desolate and frigid Canadian winter. In his mind, He pretended to be leading a gang of 500 invisible boys, which he named the, quote, Winchester Heights Gang. He was also beginning to live a very colorful fantasy life within his own mind. At 17 years old, Peter lived nearly entirely within the dark fantasies of his mind at this point. These fantasies began to spill into his reality when he began riding his bike around, finding young children, and molesting them. He had a fascination with the human body and later said that his sexual urges were just too strong at the time. His game was to find small children, choke them into unconsciousness, then undress and abuse them. So here's where I want to warn you that things are going to get a bit graphic. On September 15th, 1956, 17-year-old Peter was riding his bike around when he came across seven-year-old Wayne Mallet. Peter stopped and talked the boy into following him into a secluded area where he then strangled the boy to death. Once the little boy was gone. Peter removed his clothes. He bit the young boy on his bottom as well as his calf muscle, but it did not appear that he had sexually assaulted him. The boy's face had been mashed into the dirt and oddly, the body was found with pennies strewn all around it. Peter had defecated next to the boy's remains as well. He then redressed the boy and he left. Wayne's little body was found early the next morning. But you see, in the 1950s, they did not yet have the sophisticated testing equipment like we have now to find out who did it. So there really wasn't much evidence to go on. In less than a month, on October 6th, Peter was riding his bike around again, pretending to be leading his gang of boys, when he saw nine year old Gary Morris, he picked him up. He took him to Cherry Beach, where he mercilessly beat the young boy and then strangled him to death. He then bit the little boy's throat and dropped a bunch of paper clips around the body. When the remains were later autopsied, they discovered that he had suffered a ruptured liver from Peter stomping on him. The authorities who found him stated that, again, the murderer had taken the clothes off of the victim and then put them back on, but there was no evidence of sexual assault. Then Peter stayed quiet for a few months, most likely due to the holidays, but then on January nineteenth, 1957, He was again riding his prized bike around when he saw four-year-old Carol Royce and offered her a ride. This time, a witness saw him approach the little girl. Peter took Carol under a viaduct, which is a bridge, kind of like an overpass. This is where he strangled her and, disclaimer, he shoved a tree branch up into her pelvis. This was the injury that ultimately ended her short life. Another witness saw Peter on his bike, fleeing the scene. So, the witnesses contacted the police and were able to give a description so that a composite sketch could be put together and distributed. The sketch was also on the front page of the Toronto Star where it did not take long for Peter to be identified. He was arrested on January 21st and quickly confessed to murdering the three children, as well as molesting many, many others. He showed absolutely no emotion or concern for the children or their grieving parents. What he was worried about was whether or not his mother would find out. His trial began later that year and lasted for four days, and he was ultimately found not guilty by reason of insanity. He was then taken to a mental health hospital. His foster father never spoke to him again, but he and his foster mother wrote letters back and forth, and they kept in contact for nearly ten years, but Eventually, Peter stopped writing. While in the facility, the doctors used him as a guinea pig for all sorts of treatments and experiments, such as regularly pumping him full of LSD and then shutting him in a pitch black room for hours. He endured years of electroshock therapy, sodium amytal, which is a hypnotic sedative, and all manner of drugs to see if they could treat his psychopathy. They also performed dyadic developmental psychotherapy, which is a treatment for people, usually children, with attachment disorders. These treatments involve putting the individual in an environment that is empathic, accepting, curious, and playful. It involves eye contact, neutral or happy face expressions, careful voice tone, and appropriate touch. However, this treatment has recently come under scrutiny. There's been no supported claims that this is ultimately effective. As it was, none of these treatments were effective for Peter whatsoever. He did, however, use these learned skills to manipulate and control the other kids at the facility who had much more severe issues. He would talk them into performing sexual acts on each other regularly. And as the years went by, it got so out of control that he ultimately had to be transferred to a different facility. At the new place, Peter was surprisingly allowed supervised day passes where he could leave the hospital. He was then allowed to visit the Smith's Fall Railway Museum, as he had always enjoyed trains. He was even taken to see the movie Silence of the Lambs, if you can believe that. But during the time in the late 80s and early 90s, as Peter was aging, He legally changed his name to David Michael Kruger, but again, we will still call him Peter. He befriended a former patient at Peter's new facility. Peter felt that he was in love with this former inmate named Bruce Hamill, who now worked at the mental facility as a security guard. Peter then devised a plan of action to which Bruce would carry out. On July 31st, 1991, when Peter was 52 years old, he talked Bruce into going into a hardware store where Bruce purchased a wrench, a hatchet, knives, and a sleeping bag. He then went back, signed Peter out of the hospital on a day pass. Now, keep in mind guys, that this would be the very first time Peter had been out and unsupervised In 34 years, Peter was to meet up with a man named Dennis Kerr in the woods, not far from the hospital. Dennis had been told by Bruce that he was getting $500 from Peter. So once Dennis arrived, Peter immediately began bashing Dennis in the head with the pipe wrench repeatedly until Dennis was unconscious. Then Peter and Bruce began stabbing and slicing and hacking at him with that hatchet, mutilating his body horrendously in the process. They nearly decapitated the man during the frenzy. The two men then cut him open, stripped themselves naked, used Dennis's blood to bathe their own flesh in, then sodomized the body. Once they were satiated... Peter walked straight into a police station and turned himself in. After committing this last brutal act, Peter was transferred back to the mental health care facility that he had spent the majority of his years while in custody. And then after this brutal murder, he became the focus of a biography and several documentary films. When asked what drove him to kill, he would give various explanations, but none of them were really rational. He once said, quote, I'm accused of having no morality, which is a fair assessment because my morality is whatever the system allows, End quote. Peter later died of natural causes in 2010. So what do you think about Peter? There is that old debate over nature versus nurture. So was it nature? Was Peter perhaps born different? Did he inherit some violent propensity through his genes? It's hard to say because we know nothing about his biological background. Being born during a time of horrible poverty in Canada, it is reasonable to assume that his mother during her pregnancy could very well have been compromised. It is also reasonable to assume that she did not take care of herself like taking prenatal vitamins or was able to afford a healthy diet. She was most likely very stressed and overworked and didn't have regular doctor's visits. Or was it perhaps nurture? I believe in Peter's case that it was leaning more toward nurture. Peter most likely suffered from colic. His incessant crying pushed his mother to give him away, among other factors, I'm sure. Peter being passed around from foster home to foster home would be horrible, never feeling wanted or truly loved. No one to develop a loving and trusting bond with. In my own opinion, I believe Peter was a product of his very early childhood. I am in no way excusing his behavior or condoning his crimes. Of course, of course not. But I do think that if his very early life had been different and positive, even if he were destined to have some sort of issues, he might have at least been able to function or be a productive member of society. Maybe. Hmm. Oh, well, what do you guys think? Leave me a comment below, or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. All of my contact information is below. Consider becoming a patron. Leave me a like, a subscribe, but most importantly, thank you guys so, so much, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.